Caleb to bring up the lights just a little bit more than usual to help us stay awake. I know I get really sleepy on days like today, so hopefully I don't put myself to sleep. Um, So at this point, we have spent six weeks in the book of Colossians, six whole weeks. And uh, this is week seven, and we're actually almost done, which is pretty cool. We've almost made it through the whole thing. Um, And this is actually the last message that I'm going to be giving on the book of Colossians. Uh, because next week I'm going to be at a wedding, so Rob Johnston is going to be here, and he's going to finish us up. So I think, I'm a little jealous that he gets to finish the whole series after all this time, but uh, he's very excited to be preaching on the passage that he's going to be preaching on, so um, hope you, hopefully you guys can look forward to that. I uh, know I'm looking forward to listening to it when it goes up on the website. But before we get to this last passage, we've got one more to go. And it's an interesting one. It's one that hopefully will keep us awake. Um, Two weeks ago, we started chapter 3 of Colossians. And chapter 3 is where Paul shifts from reminding the Colossians of the gospel to reminding them of how they should live. And the formal way of putting it is that he gives a list of exhortations. The less formal way of putting it is he gives a list of do's and don'ts. Two weeks ago, we looked at a list of don'ts. We called them dragons to to slay, things to put to death. And then last week, we looked at a list of do's. We called them clothes to put on, God's wardrobe. And in our passage today, the section on exhortations is continuing. But now we're looking at a section that deals specifically with rules for Christian households. So a section on house rules. And this list of house rules has a few parts in it that might sound a little offensive to our modern ears. Um, I think if you read this passage in one of the classrooms down the road at UConn, it would probably provoke some pretty strong objections. Um, Now, my goal today is not going to be to entirely remove the offense of this passage. Uh, That's not my goal. My goal, though, is to help us to understand the spirit of what Paul is saying here. That is is my goal. And I do think that when we do that, a lot of the initial offense that we might feel is lessened considerably or maybe even completely removed. So, um, let's look at this passage, but before we do, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Uh, Over the last six weeks, we've been reminded of the beauty of the gospel and the fact that uh, we are saved because we're dearly loved by you, um, not by earning our way to you, God. We thank you that what you offer us in Christ is is complete and sufficient. Um, But we also thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us to to give us uh, instructions on how to live. And, God, we pray that as we look at these instructions, that you would help us to understand the spirit of them, God, that you would give us a willingness to receive uh, what it is that you want us to know. So we ask that you guide us, God, uh, give us hearts to receive and, and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, Colossians 3, verse 18. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, 
Obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so let's just cut to the chase and acknowledge the parts here that might push some of our buttons. All right, first, there's this line, wives, submit to your husbands. All right, are you sure about that, Paul? Submit, kind of a tough pill to swallow. And it's a tough pill to swallow because when we hear this, we hear certain things in our minds. Things like, women, your husband should be making all the decisions for both of you. Women, if your husbands are abusive, you just have to accept it. Women, you are less valuable than men. Women, you don't have the right to have your own opinions. Women, you need a man to tell you what to do, etc., etc., Now, I don't believe that any of those statements follow from what Paul's teaching here. Um, I do believe that what Paul's saying here has been twisted at times in order to justify statements like these. But I think none of these were Paul's intent, and we'll get to that later. Uh, But the second part that's likely to push our buttons is this whole section on slaves, right? Especially that opening line, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Again, are you sure about that, Paul? in everything, because when we hear that line, we hear things like, slavery in the United States never should have been abolished. Uh, Masters can do whatever they want with their slaves. It's okay to buy and sell human beings. And once again, I don't think that these statements follow from what Paul is saying here. If we understand the spirit of what Paul is teaching, they've been used in the past to justify statements like this, but I don't think that's Paul's intent but we'll get to why in a little bit. But first, the first thing we need to do is that we need to understand a little bit about the context that Paul was writing in. What Paul's writing here is something called a household code. And it was very common during Paul's day when somebody made a piece of moral writing, writing that had moral instruction in it, to include a house code. And a house code is just a set of rules on, you know, what you should and should not do and how people should interact with each other inside a home. And now, from what I've learned... Uh, In the days of the Roman Empire, it was assumed that the patriarch of the household had absolute authority and control. That was the norm. So, because of this, most house codes only gave instructions to women, children, and slaves. So it's not unusual at all that Paul gives instructions to wives and children and slaves. But what is unusual is that he also gives instructions to husbands and masters, and parents. Um, And what we need to recognize is how much that would have stood out to the original audience, how strange that would have been. So even though parts of this passage might sound regressive to our modern ears, we need to realize that for that first century audience, this was progressive. So we need to keep that in mind as we're considering what's the spirit here of Paul's teaching. So, got three main relationships in view here, right? Husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and slaves. 
So what we're going to do today is we're just going to look more closely at each one of these and what Paul has to say about each one. And then we're going to try to identify what those instructions mean for us today, living in the 21st century. So, first one, husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the first question we have to ask is, what does this word submit really mean? The word in the Greek here is hupotasso. And it's actually the same word that Paul uses when giving instructions on how to relate to the government. He says in uh, Romans 13.1, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Hupotasso. So, given this fact, one thing that we can be sure of is that hupotasso does not mean obey no matter what. And we can be sure of that because do you remember where Paul is writing Colossians from? <laughs> He's under house arrest. Right? Because he did some things that the governing authorities didn't like. He was preaching the gospel. So, hubitasso does not mean obey no matter what. It means obey insofar as your conscience allows. Right? So, in Paul's case, he knew that he had to be faithful first to the Lord. So, that meant preaching the gospel even though the government didn't like it. And it meant that he'd be writing Colossians from house arrest. So, in the same way... When Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, it can't be a call for blind, absolute obedience. It doesn't make sense. However, he is still saying something that might be hard for some of us to hear. He's saying, wives, as far as you are able, without sinning, yield to your husbands, submit to them. But there's something else we need to notice, too. And that is that the more precise translation of hupotasso in this case, is not submit, but submit yourself. Quick language lesson. So, hopefully this isn't too boring. This is one of the things you do in seminary, is uh, learn about Greek. Greek verbs have three possible voices. Excuse me. So there's active, passive, and middle. And verbs with the active voice are verbs where the subject does the act. Like, the cat ate the mouse. The cat is the subject. The cat is performing the action of eating, right? Passive verbs are verbs where the subject is acted upon, like the cat was eaten by the mouse. And middle verbs, though, are verbs where the subject acts upon itself, like the cat ate himself. And in that case, um, you can see that the subject is acting upon himself. And in the case of the verb for submit, hupotasso, in this case, it's in the middle voice. So the command here is for the wife to willingly submit herself. All right. And this is so important. This is critical. Because if the command is for the wife to submit herself to her husband, then that means that the husband is never supposed to force her to submit. Okay. That is not his job. The, hover, the husband is never given the command, make sure your wife submits. Nope. The command he gets is, love your wife, and do not be harsh with her. So husbands, regardless of what you think submission in a marriage should look like, you need to remember that your job is not to make your wife do that. Okay? Your job is to love your wife and not to be harsh with her, and you need to leave the submission thing between her and God. So, let's take a look at this instruction to husbands. 
Because uh, remember that this is the instruction that really would have stood out in this couplet. Uh, the instruction to wives would have sounded pretty par for the course in the first century, but uh, instruction to husbands, that would have been unusual. So husbands are told to love their wives. And the Greek word there is agape. And if you were here last week, you remember that we talked a little bit about agape. Agape is the word that I use to describe the kind of love that God has for human beings. Um, I described it last week as the will to bless another. It's the, the desire to see someone truly happy, healthy, and whole, and to be willing to do whatever it takes in order to help them achieve that, even if it comes at great personal sacrifice. And the greatest example of agape in history is when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, willingly suffered and died on a cross for the sins of the world. And so when Paul calls husbands to agape their wives, he's calling them to that kind of love, the kind of love that Christ has for the world. In fact, there's another place in the New Testament where Paul gives a very similar house code. And in that letter, he specifies that this is exactly what he means. In Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So do you realize what a high standard God's calling husbands to? They definitely aren't being granted permission to abuse their wives, that's for sure. They're being called to be like Christ, and Christ doesn't abuse the church. Christ offers everything he has for the sake of the church. Agape is the opposite of abuse. And when this was written, in a time in history when women had very few rights, and the man of the household was rarely given instructions by anybody, this was really revolutionary stuff. So, wives are called to submit themselves, kupitaso, to their husbands, and husbands are called to love, agape, their wives. And what I'd like us to notice is that there is, in a sense, kupitaso in agape. Because when we agape someone, we submit ourselves to their needs and interests, right? When Paul describes Christ's agape, he says that Christ gave himself up for the church. So when, when we agape, our focus isn't on our needs and interests, it's on another's needs and interests. To agape is to yield to the concerns and needs and interests of another, even if it comes at great personal cost. So although agape and hupitasso are not exactly the same thing, there are elements of hupitasso in agape. So, that means that it's very simplistic to think that Paul is teaching that submission in a marriage only goes in one direction. Because the reality is that if a husband is practicing agape, then he's going to be submitting his needs and interests to that of his wife on a daily basis. When agape is part of the picture, there really is going to be a type of mutual submission that goes on in a marriage. In fact, Paul even says at the start of his house code in Ephesians, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's bring this out of the theoretical and into real life. Let's say a husband and wife are trying to decide where to live. And uh, she's got family and a job opportunity in Florida. He's got a family and a job opportunity in Maine opposite sides of the East Coast. So both are excited about job opportunities, both love their families and want to be near them. It's a real dilemma, right? So how do we apply Paul's instructions in a situation like this? Well, it seems to me that if both the wife and the husband are going to follow the instructions that Paul gives here, 
Here's what it's going to look like. The wife is going to be willing to yield her interests to her husband's. And she'll submit himself, herself to his leading. That's it. <laughs> uh, no, but at the same time, the husband is going to be willing to give up his interests for her sake. And the husband is, under, is going to understand that if he's going to love his, life, his wife well, he's going to need to treat her as an equal in the process of making a decision like this. Because it definitely isn't very loving to make a decision like that unilaterally, is it? a decision that is so going to affect his wife. So if the husband is going to love his wife well, they're going to sit down and they're going to talk through the pros and cons of each possibility. And they're going to pray together. And they're going to ask God for his leading. And I can't tell you whether they're going to end up in Florida or Maine, but if the wife is submitting and the husband is truly loving, then neither her interests or his interests are going to dominate. But what's going to happen if that, is that space is going to be opened up, it's going to be created, in order for God's interests to dominate. Because when we're willing to let go of our own desires, we're free to follow God's leading. But you might ask, okay, well, who gets to make that final decision? Who makes the call? It's the husband, right? Well, maybe. But if the husband is practicing agape, he might choose to let his wife make the final decision. And hopefully, as married couples surrender their interests to one another, space is made for God to make the final call. All right, well, a lot more could be said about this whole issue of submission. I feel a little bit like I did a couple weeks ago when the whole issue of sexual immorality came up, and I was like, man, there's just not enough time to deal with all facets of this. Um, But since we still have two more household relationships to look at, we're going to need to stop here. But aside from the issue of submission, Paul gives one more instruction to husbands that's important. He says, do not be harsh with your wives. The word here in the Greek is sometimes translated as bitter. Don't be bitter with your wives. And when I read this, I was reminded of an article I saw recently about the strongest indicator of whether or not a marriage will end in divorce. And studies have shown the strongest predictor of divorce is the presence of contempt in couples' interactions. And I would say that contempt is what Paul's talking about here when he talks about not being bitter. Contempt is treating someone like they're not worthy of your time or or respect. Uh, It comes out in nasty words and insults, in sarcasm, in eye rolls, um, in tone of voice and sneering. And Paul's saying, husbands, do not go there. Now, I'm sure Paul doesn't think that wives should treat their husbands with contempt either. Um, but he does focus on the husband's responsibility here in avoiding contempt. So, let's be careful. Paul and recent studies agree, contempt is toxic. If you're in a conversation with your spouse and it crosses into contempt, stop. (laughs) Recognize it as contempt, apologize. If you need to have some alone time, have some alone time. But once an argument or an interaction gets to that point where it's crossed into contempt, you have to stop it in its tracks because it's not leading anywhere good. All right, let's move on to the second relationship, parents and children. Verses 20 and 21 say, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, I think when it comes to the first part of this couplet, uh, I don't think we need much clarification. Generally speaking, most of us probably agree children should obey their parents. 
Parents provide for their children. They know a lot more about the world than their children do. So children should not be telling parents what to do. Parents should be telling children what to do. Makes sense. I realize that there are some special circumstances where kids are probably better off not obeying their parents, especially in circumstances of abuse. Uh, but But Paul's not talking about exceptional circumstances here. That's not what's in view. He's talking to a Christian audience, and he's making a general statement about how the home should operate. Children should obey their parents and everything. But, Paul reminds, uh, parents also need to be careful about how they do this. And he singles out the fathers, but I think what he says applies to mothers as well. He says, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Some translations say, don't exasperate your children, or don't provoke your children to anger. Now, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure that those of you who are would be able to tell me that it's pretty much impossible to not get your kids angry sometimes. Uh, Not long ago, I stumbled across a blog by a young parent called uh, Reasons My Son Is Crying. And... uh, Parents across the world will send in uh, descriptions of why their kids are crying to him. So uh, some of my favorites were, uh, I wouldn't let him bash me in the face with a phone. I made him wear underwear. I cooked her eggs instead of feeding them to her raw. The muffins didn't come out of the oven cold. So, the fact of the matter is, if you're a parent and you're doing your job, sometimes your kids aren't going to be happy with you. That just comes with the territory. That's okay. But there is such a thing as exasperating your kids unnecessarily. And Paul says that when parents treat their kids in this way, they become discouraged. Some translations say, broken in spirit. So parents, don't forget that you have the power to break your children's spirit. A broken spirit is a spirit where curiosity and wonder and confidence have been replaced by fear and anger. And there's a lot of ways that this can happen, but I think what Paul has especially in mind here relates to the first part of his instruction, the first part of the couplet. He's saying, kids, obey your parents, but parents, recognize if you're overbearing in your rules, you're going to exasperate your children and you're going to break their spirit." Again, I'm not a parent, so I want to be careful about the advice I give, but here's something that comes to my mind when I read this verse. In some homes, the parents really value cleanliness. And they create a lot of rules in order to make sure that things are clean, both that the house is clean and that the kids themselves are clean. And uh, certainly some rules are needed when it comes to that. Cleanliness matters. Part of growing up is learning how to keep things clean and neat, right? Uh, But if kids are never able to make a mess without mom or dad getting upset, uh, if they're never able to get muddy or get paint on their fingers or um, take something apart and spread it all over the floor, then that can be spirit-breaking. Because what gets communicated over time is keeping things neat is more important than your curiosity or your exploration or your ability to try new things. So be careful not to exasperate your children by putting too high a priority on cleanliness. Um, That's my humble, unmarried, childless advice. (laughs) 
Another source of exasperation for children is when parents don't give them a degree of freedom that's appropriate to their age and maturity level. And I'm sure that's a really hard thing to navigate as a parent. That's one of the things that scares me about being a parent. Uh, knowing when it's time to loosen the reins and how far you should loosen them. But it's important for parents to be mindful that if the reins are held too tightly, that can be spirit-breaking. When I was in college, I had friends whose parents basically decided for them what their majors were going to be. And I saw how crushing that was for some of them. And they felt like uh, they couldn't really challenge their parents because their parents were paying for their education. And... You know, I understand that a lot of those parents were very well-meaning. They wanted their kids to be able to uh, get jobs where they would make a decent amount of money and have a good life and everything. But my humble advice is, if whether you're paying for the education or not, at that point, your kids really need the freedom to be able to pursue whatever their interests actually are. Because God has given them, as unique sons and daughters, like, you know, their own unique interests and inclinations and desires. If they're not able to pursue those, if they feel like they're just tied and they can't actually do that, um, I think that that is exasperating and it can break their spirits. So, not saying thus saith the Lord, but... Okay. One more relationship left. Slaves and masters. Now, like I said earlier, for a lot of us, this section is upsetting. It's upsetting because we're bothered by the fact that God's word talks about slavery, but it doesn't just say, end slavery. Right? We want the Bible to come out swimming, swinging against this barbaric institution. And so when we hear the words, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, we can get pretty uncomfortable. So if you're feeling uncomfortable, I would encourage you to consider a few things. First, in the world that Paul was writing in, slavery was just part of the social order. I don't know what percentage of the population in uh, Colossae was slaves, but I do know that in Corinth at this time, two-thirds of the population were either slaves or had been slaves. So think about that. Two-thirds of the population. This is a very deep social institution. It is part of the order, the way everything operates. Now, when we think of slavery, we think of certain things. We think of the subjugation of particular races. We think of dehumanization and violence. And we think of sexual assault. And probably a whole bunch of other terrible things, too. But those are three things that come to my mind as some of the worst aspects of slavery. And what I want us to see is that when we consider Colossians as a whole, there is no way that Paul is endorsing any of these things. Absolutely no way. He can't be endorsing racism, right? Because just a little earlier in the same letter, he says, in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And he can't be endorsing dehumanization or violence Because he just finished telling everyone, as we learned last week, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he definitely can't be endorsing sexual assault, because, as we learned two weeks ago, he says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. 
See, so many of the horrible things that we associate with slavery, Paul has already denounced. So this passage is anything but an endorsement of those evil things. And let's not forget, Paul takes the revolutionary step of not only giving instructions to slaves, but also giving instructions to masters. And he tells the masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So in other words, masters, you should treat your slaves like the way your master in heaven treats you. And that brings us back to agape, doesn't it? God is a loving master. God is the master who lays down his life for the sake of his subjects. And earthly masters are called to be like that heavenly master. So with all that considered, I would say that a modern application for these verses would be that the relationship between employers and employee that the relationship uh, between slaves and masters is analogous to the relationship between employers and employees. So to those of us who are employees, Paul tells us that we need to be obedient to our supervisors. We need to work hard. Not just when they might notice, but even when they're unlikely to realize the work that we've done. And what he encourages us to do is to see our service not as service to an employer, but as service to Christ himself. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Can you imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world where everyone actually did this? You know, where no one cut corners on the job at all, but actually did their work as if they were doing it for God himself. That would be a better place, I think, for all of us to live. And notice that Paul says, whatever you do. You know, a lot of the time we tend to think of service to the Lord as only church-related stuff. But here we're encouraged to take whatever job we have, so long as it's not immoral, and view our work there as service to the Lord. So if you're washing windows, you can do that for God. It's just all about your mindset. And if you're doing it for God, chances are those windows are going to look really nice. There's this special power that comes to do a job well when we're doing it not just for ourselves, not just for an employer, but for Christ. And finally, for those of us who are employers, we should consider what Paul says to masters. He says, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Pay them well. Make sure their needs are met. Don't take advantage. So I hope that after walking through this passage, we can see that a lot of those offensive lines that we heard in our heads in the beginning aren't actually supported by this passage. This passage is not about the subjugation of women. It's not about authoritarian control of children. It's not about the endorsement of slavery. What it's really about is just about promoting mutual love and respect between the most significant relationships in the home. That's what it is. And when we look at the passage as a whole, rather than just isolating one part of each couplet, that becomes clear. Every command in the first part of the couplet is restrained and balanced by the command in the second part. And when we look at it um, just as a part, each, each part of the couplet has the potential to be abused. But when we look at it as a whole, it really is a beautiful and helpful teaching. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you so much that, that you value mutual love and respect. God, I thank you that you have given us a model to follow in our relationships through the agape that you displayed on the cross. 
And God, we recognize that this is a high standard that you're calling all of us to. To love one another, to submit to each other, to care about others' needs and interests more than ourselves. And God, I ask that you would give us um, power to be able to do that, Lord. I ask that you'd give us willingness to to do it and the ability to recognize the areas where we need to grow. It's uh, easy to talk about this stuff in theory, but when it comes to actually living it out, that's where it becomes challenging. So God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us. We thank you for the example you've set. And we pray, Lord, that if if others who are uh, not in the church come to us and they're concerned about this passage and what it's actually saying, that we'll be able to help them to understand the beauty in it and uh, to not be scared off by it. We thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.